calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 4, Episode 12. They found an amenable farmer outside of town who could spare the corner of a pasture, empty except for a placid yakko who deemed them less interesting than his feed and sleeping. Once they had called Asante, Sal snuggled down next to Grace in her sleeping bag. You know, said Sal, we could have asked Asante to blow out the candle. I don't think anyone is going to bother us out here. That's the kind of thing people say before they get attacked in their sleep by a crazed yakko. A crazed yakko? It happens. Middle of the night, the yak blood overruns their quiet cow nature and they snap. Only a city girl would ever think that cows have a placid nature. Shut up and go to sleep, said Grace. Sal was tempted to, but felt like she had to say something. You know you don't have to use your candle for... Grace didn't let her finish, I know, she said. Sal felt like she should follow up on that, argue more, but the night was cold and quiet and her sleeping bag and her girlfriend were warm. And for the next few hours, she decided to let that be enough. The afternoon light that had streamed through the library windows while Asante had spoken over the crackling connection to Sal and Grace was nearly gone. Curse London on its short autumn days. She never thought she would regret leaving Rome. But now she was in a country even darker and damper, half a world from the magic item that might prove vital to the struggle to keep their cracked terrarium of a world from sinking beneath the waves. Of course, it could also be the thing that sank them, or the key to making perfect pies without soggy bottoms. And to find it, all she had to go on was the English translation of the Chinese translation of a song written in Tibetan. That was the problem with being good at your job. Your co-workers expected you to produce miracles as a matter of course. In the corner, Perry was curled in the last bit of light coming through the windows and singing to himself. He's getting worse. Perry needed to get out of London, with its high levels of background magic, even more than she did. 
Asante went back to her work. If she could find a record of the song in its original language, perhaps... A scrap of music floated across her ear. Perry? The words, in a language Asante did not speak, but which reminded her of a little bit of Hindi, ceased. Yeah? What are you singing? The next morning, Sal jolted awake with a start, only to find Grace warm and breathing beside her. Given that Sal was so used to being woken by a cold hand under the blanket, it took her a few seconds to figure out why she wasn't still asleep. Beep, beep, beep. Cell phone. It took a little bit of work to fish her phone out from where it had slid under the sleeping bags during the night, but she managed to catch Asante's call before it went to voicemail. Outside the tent, the yak house snuffled. Asante's voice on the other end of the call sounded tired, but satisfied. Be sure to thank your brother when you get back. Okay, do I get to know why? Because of him, I can confirm that this song is not leading you on a wild goose chase. Well, probably not. It's still no way to know if the flower is the object the Engstroms are after, but even if it isn't, if you find it, you'll have it and they won't, so you can take that for a win. Sal sat up, pulling the sleeping bag tightly around her shoulders. Turned out fall in the Himalayas was really cold. Go figure. Is that what you've got for us? Keep following the song? You recite to me the translation of a translation of a... No, never mind. We found the earliest written version of the song. Lyrics are surprisingly accurate. A slightly better translation for the eternal flower would be the lotus of time. I'm not sure why they made the change, but my guess is that it doesn't scan as well in Chinese. What does it do? Sal asked. Grace was sitting up now, and Sal angled the phone so that she could hear. You heard the song. It granted the bohitsava, enlightenment, and eternal life. If all you found is the song, what makes you so sure that it leads to something? Asked Grace. Sal could practically hear Asante's eyes rolling as she replied, Because we found records of at least five other people or groups who attempted to follow the song to the lotus. Most were never heard from again. But one explorer returned. He had aged 30 years and little more than two weeks and claimed that he had seen the end of the world. What happened to him after that? Asked Sal. Everyone assumed he was insane and he eventually committed suicide. So everyone who has followed this song is either lost, dead, or lost him presumed dead. That is correct. In the ensuing pause, Sal looked at Grace. The blue nylon of the tent created interesting highlights in her hair. Have we done something recently to really piss you off? She asked. Asante's laugh on the other end of the line was warm in spite of the static. I'm uploading the rude information we found to your phone. Well, I'm going to have Frances upload the information to your phone. She knows how to do that sort of thing. Thank you, said Sal. You're welcome, Asante replied. Try not to die. Four. Asante's directions first led Sal and Grace to a well-established hiking trail, then to a less-established hiking trail, then to a dry stream bed, and finally to a crack in a sheer rock face. Although it was a tight squeeze for the first few feet, the entrance eventually opened up into a chamber with two exits on the far side. On the left-hand wall, a niche contained a statue of the Buddha, along with remnants of a withered orange and a spent incense stick. Left or right? Sal asked. I thought you were team leader now. I'm our lead investigator, not lead direction picker. 
Which way do you want to investigate then? Sal sighed. Left, I guess. Grace nodded and shouldered her pack, walking without hesitation to the left entrance. Before she followed, Sal looked at the Buddha again. Is it disrespectful to leave something if you're not a Buddhist? She asked. Grace shrugged. Ask a Buddhist. Sal decided that when you were looking for a lost magical artifact along a route that had apparently killed or driven insane everyone who had come before you, it was better to be safe than sorry. She reached into her pocket and remembered the last time she had searched there for a gift to give a divine messenger and shuddered. Sure, they had gotten their prophecy from the Pythia, but... To Sal's relief, this time her fingers did not find a paper packet of her brother's hair. Only a receipt from the airport snack bar, her keys, and a lone strawberry starburst. She'd been saving it, since she liked the pink ones best. She supposed that made it a suitable offering. Sal left the happy pink square by the Buddha's left hand, just in case it helped, and followed Grace out of the chamber. Sitting beside their car, which was stopped along with two others, Pavels and a bus on the road back to Paro, Munchu waited for a school of fish swimming up the mountain to finish crossing the road and realized why he found Bhutan so stressful. The people were friendly. Their guide was helpful. Karen and Sven seemed content to sit in their hotel and periodically send Pavel off to amble in the mountains, excursions that Pavel undertook with poor grace and on which Liam or Manchu would dutifully follow. The problem was the magic. Not even the magic, per se. London was steeped in magic in a way that put anywhere else in the world to shame, and it didn't bother him when they were there. No, it was the local response to it. Or rather, the total lack of response. The transformation at the festival had not been an isolated incident. At least once a day, he encountered something that, in today's London, would have had emergency responders running, or pinged the orb and sent Team 3 running in the decades before. And universally, the Bhutanese solution to the forest singing Korean pop songs, or the sky turning silvery pink like a sunset in the middle of the day, or fish swimming up the mountain and blocking traffic, was to simply wait until whatever was happening had passed and then resume their daily lives. And as far as he could tell, that was working out for them just fine. The country was beautiful and unspoiled in a way he had not experienced anywhere else in the world. The people did not seem to live in fear. And it forced Manchu to ask himself a very uncomfortable question. Had spending the greater part of his career devoted to neutralizing magic been an utter waste of time? Grace was in the lead, so she was the one who spotted the remains. She signaled for Sal to stop, then cautiously approached the desiccated figure in its worn fatigues, checking for booby traps, ready to burn in an instant to bring herself to a safe distance, before motioning for Sal to come forward. It was Chinese military, from the clothes, she said as she squatted by the body. Recent. Sal frowned. How recent? Grace didn't follow the minutiae of changes to the uniform of the PLA, but she could make an educated guess. Last ten years? This answer didn't seem to make Sal any happier. From the state of the body, I would have guessed older. Then again, knowing things like that is what forensic pathologists are for. She turned the body, checking the skull, opening the shirt to look for wounds. Beyond what looked like a twisted ankle, there were no obvious injuries. Mm, doesn't seem likely he died of a twisted ankle, she said. Grace opened his mouth, saw the teeth ground down to nearly nothing. 
Could have been starvation, she said. His teeth were so bad he couldn't eat? He ran out of food and ate rocks in desperation. Sal let out a low whistle. Oddly, even surrounded by hard surfaces, the sound didn't echo. The tone was flat and dead. Regretfully, she pushed back up from her squat. What a horrible way to go. Grace couldn't argue. Of course, she knew how her life would end, with a guttering flame and a sleep that went on forever. We should move on. They did, for hours. Walking through tunnel after tunnel that led to chamber after chamber. Sometimes there were markers carved or painted on the walls, like someone had been trying to keep track of their way as they journeyed through the maze, which nagged at Grace for reasons she couldn't quite put her finger on. It was a sensible thing to do, wasn't it? She started making marks of her own. Eventually, they found other bodies, some in groups, most alone. Sal gave them nicknames, shot in the back dude, bashed each other's heads in couple, the cannibal backpackers, all in the same state of desiccation. Well, at least we've solved the mystery of what happened to all of those people who tried to follow the song before, said Sal. As bright sides went, it was pretty bleak, which Grace pointed out because dating someone didn't mean that everything they said was adorable. Sal didn't try to argue. Actually, to be honest, I'm not even sure we've done that. Grace raised her eyebrow. Sal usually didn't need her to state the full question when she did that. She liked that about her. We know how these people died, said Sal, or we can make a good guess, but we don't know why. Like, yeah, twisted ankle guy, maybe couldn't get out and starved, but what about the others? In my experience, cannibalism is no one's first resort. Grace was about to inquire into Sal's experience with cannibalism when she entered a new chamber and stopped short. What is it? Grace stood aside so that Sal could see. The rocky passages and rooms they had been traversing were all variations of shades of brown and gray. Even the clothes of the corpses had been brought into that palette by layers of dirt and mud. The pink of a strawberry starburst placed in a wall niche at eye level stood out like a beacon. Well, of course our work and no waste of time, said Liam as they watched the three angstroms from the veranda of the restaurant across the street from their hotel. Do you think the hand would have just shrugged and buggered off out of Sal's head if we'd left it alone? No, no, you're right said Manchu. Of course you're right. I know I am, said Liam, because it's what you had taught me when I joined up with this outfit. So why are you suddenly having trouble believing it? Belief had never been Manchu's problem. He let out a long sigh. Logically, I know that we do the work that needs to be done, but what if it's like a mosquito bite? The more you scratch it, the more it itches. And so over the years, our intervention has made the magical problems we've been having worse, which in turn requires more intervention, a vicious, destructive cycle. Make that intervention over the centuries, then. Even if you're right, the society started scratching long before we came along. And didn't we work out that this is all on Hannah and her weird science experiment anyway? Liam finished the last of his water and put down his glass with a deliberate thunk. You can't get wrapped up in that kind of chicken and egg shit, he said with feeling. You're just gonna drive yourself in circles. We're right back where we started. Sal knew she was stating the obvious even as she said it. Maybe it would help to hear it out loud.
Maybe there was another perfectly logical explanation for what was going on, and if she said what she was thinking, Grace would step in and correct her. No, we're not, said Grace. Oh, thank God. If this were the chamber where we entered, there would be three entrances, not two. Sal looked. There was the wall with the Buddha niche. Then, on the adjoining wall, two tunnels, right and left. There had always been two. What did Grace mean that there had been three? The way we came in from the outside, said Grace. That was the third one. Sal looked. Naturally, that was the passage that was missing. Well, fuck. I guess now we know why people starved or returned to cannibalism. They had come out of the same left tunnel they had entered, so this time they tried the one on the right. It felt different, at least Sal told herself it did, until they found the same bodies in the same order, the same marks that Grace had made on the walls the first time through. Grace crossed them off the other way, then caught herself mid-stroke. What is it? I just realized why the marks were bothering me, said Grace. I've been thinking of this place like a maze. It isn't. Huh? There are no choices. Grace explained. There's that one at the beginning, left or right, but everything after is just one twisting path. And even that isn't a choice, because here we are on the same path as last time. Which doesn't make any sense, because if the two doors join to the same route, you should be able to see where they connect, and we can't. Sal paused, then added, and the way in shouldn't mysteriously vanish. It's almost like the powerful magical artifact doesn't want anyone to get to it. Sal ignored Grace's sarcasm. It wasn't like she was the one who had trapped them in here. How long had they been wandering and getting nowhere? Sal shuddered. She couldn't die here. Couldn't abandon Perry. Couldn't leave Grace trapped until her candle burned out. Okay, then, if not dying was the goal, what they needed next was a plan. Best to play to her strengths and approach this like a case. Step one, collect all possible evidence. If this is a magical trap, we can't assume that just because a trail looks identical, it will lead to the same place, said Sal. So, unless you have a better idea, I say we keep walking until we get back to where we started or end up somewhere else. Grace said nothing, but she resumed walking, crossing off her trail marks as they went. The second path did lead back to the Buddha and the starburst. Grace tried not to think about the hours of her life that she would never get back. She recited poems in her head as she walked, took out old memories and examined them, let Sal lead for a while in an effort to use her time constructively by admiring her girlfriend from behind. Her skin itched with the time that had slipped past her, put to no greater good than setting one foot in front of the other. Still, Grace was the one who pushed for them to make the third circle. Because walking was better than sitting and waiting, waiting for time to pass, waiting for Sal to apologize again for wasting her time, as though she were the one they needed to worry about. Grace couldn't starve, couldn't perish of thirst. If she were injured, she would eventually heal. If they were out of touch for long enough, Asante might even put out her candle, letting her wait indefinitely to be rescued. Grace could survive this. Sal was the one who would die. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. 
Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. As they reached the body of the rock eater for at least the sixth time, Sal stopped to look down. She couldn't imagine being so hungry that eating rocks would seem like a good idea. Then again, they'd only been stuck in here for... Sal pulled out her phone to check the time. Still morning. Was it the same day? For some reason, she couldn't remember what day they had gone into the cave. Maybe Grace could. She looked at the stiff lines of Grace's back. Better not to bother her. To think that they'd been trying to get some time alone together. Now, time was all they had. Time. The lotus of time. Sal looked at her phone again. 87% charged. Even though they had to have been in here for hours under thousands of tons of rock, her phone should have drained itself, searching in vain for a network to connect to. Grace turned when she realized that Sal wasn't following. Are you all right? She asked, voice tight, worried. Slowly, Sal nodded. She was fine, and she shouldn't be. Her feet did not ache, her back was not sore from her pack. She was not, are you hungry? Sal asked. A pause. I don't really get hungry, Grace admitted. Sal made a new mental note in the catalog of things she still had to learn about Grace. Okay, fair enough, but I do. Except I'm not. Grace frowned. Sal tried again. It feels like we've been in here for hours, right? Days, said Grace. Right, days, Sal confirmed. But I'm not hungry. I'm not sore. 
I'm not sleepy. Grace, we're trapped in time. Time was a river sweeping every boat along in the current together, except for one. Grace tangled her fingers into Sal's still too short hair and clung to her like she was a rock, as though by holding her close, she could let the current pass them by, live in this moment forever. Just because I can burn doesn't mean I can find the lotus, Grace whispered. I could get lost. It could all be for nothing. Sal's lips frowned hers, wind-burned and chapped from the high altitude. Perfect. If you can't find it, find your way back to me. Grace raced forward with the current, with every moment reaching toward her death. The cave walls flickered, water seeped from the stone, poured, evaporated in an instant, gone too quickly to perceive. For the first time since she had been cursed with it, she had no sense of her candle. Surely she must be nearing the end of her years by now. Now? Now? Hadn't Asante said the mad monk who returned from his quest for the lotus claimed to have seen the end of the world? Maybe that was how far you had to go to reach enlightenment. It was in all the stories, from the one on the placemat to the song that had brought her to this moment. Give up everything you owned, everything you wanted, everything you loved and prized and hoped for, and in the moment when you had given up everything, the object of your search appeared. In a moment as long as heartache and as quick as joy, Sal blinked. And when she opened her eyes, Grace stood before her. Her face was wet with tears, and in her hands, she held a shining crystal flower. Sal felt fresh air rush into her lungs, blow across her cheek, lift the hair at the nape of her neck. Not hot, stale cave air, but cool, moist wind from the way out, open again. Sal looked from the crystal flower to the pink candy by the niche to Grace's expression, both elated and crushed. Time to go? she asked. Grace nodded, too overwhelmed to speak. Sal squeezed her shoulder, and together they walked into the light. They emerged into the glare of the sun shining off snow and the barrels of half a dozen QBZ-95 automatic rifles. In her peripheral vision, Grace could see Sal slowly raise her hands. Grace dimly processed that perhaps she should do the same, but also that doing so while holding an ancient magical artifact of incalculable value would be a bad idea. Her hands stayed where they were. So did the rifles. A woman wearing a padded jacket over the sensible suit that said government official so loudly it might as well have been a uniform stepped out from between the soldiers. Wong, of the agency that had replaced Grace's after the revolution. She did not smile as she met Grace's eyes. Thank you for finding the Lotus. We were running out of agents we trusted to recover it ourselves. Liam and Manchu were spending the afternoon watching a match at the National Archery Stadium. At this point, Liam had to think that their guide was only pretending not to notice that they were more interested in the three Swedes four rows in front of them than they were in an exhibition of Bhutan's national sport. To their credit, they were still paying more attention to the archery than Pavel was. Liam sighed. We should check on the girls, he said. We knew they'd be out of touch, said Manchu. They're in the middle of the mountains looking for a magical artifact. None of that adds up to good cell signal. Still, Liam began. 
Just then, Karen got a call. Bhutani's archery was a much louder pastime than Liam would have expected, but even if they had been close enough to eavesdrop, Liam's Swedish had never gotten past, hey, got a light, and is the DSL here total shit or not? In any event, the call did not last long. Karen hung up, gave her husband a quick nod, rose, and made her way toward the exit. Sven prodded Pavel to follow. As they climbed up the aisle, Pavel caught Liam's eye and gave him the most obnoxious grin he had ever seen. Thanks for finding the lotus for us, he said. Liam felt the bottom drop out of his stomach, even as he reached for his phone and pulled up Sal's number in his contact list. Her phone rang and rang and rang. Five. You have been found in Chinese sovereign territory with intent to commit espionage and remove antiquities without the knowledge or permission of the government. Wang's English was fluent and used for Sal's benefit. Or possibly for Ingrid and Gala Engström, who were standing near the door. Grace doubted the twins had bothered to learn Mandarin. Beside Wang, another Chinese official wearing the men's version of her suit remained silent. Grace could have kicked herself. They had all assumed that the government would be as hostile to the Engströms as they were to the Vatican. That ideology would keep proverbial strange bedfellows separate. And so they had ignored another adage applicable to almost any situation. Money talks. Her assumptions were going to get Sal thrown into a Chinese prison if she was lucky. And yet, if this was really about espionage and antiquities theft, why bother with the dog and pony show? Wang didn't need to oversee their arrest and imprisonment personally. Grace wasn't sure who the other official was, but he didn't look like the sort of person you sent to haul in a couple of prisoners. That was grunt work, what the two armed guards posted by the back wall were for. This was theater, designed to frighten and unnerve them, yes, but Grace didn't think she and Sal were the only intended audience. And so, when Wang concluded her litany of their crimes, Grace turned to her and the silent man and said in Chinese, now that you have impressed the Swedes with how serious you are, can we get down to the real business? Grace was expecting the gun butt to her head. It would have cracked Sal's skull and left Grace's ears ringing. She could feel blood slipping down her scalp. She heard Sal's sharp inhalation and hoped that she had the sense not to do something stupid, because the calculation had paid off. The man rose from his position behind the table and politely ushered Ingrid and Gala from the room. The guards with the guns went with them. Interesting. Wang did not move from her seat. When the man returned, instead of joining her, he came around the front of the table. He leaned against it and, addressing Grace, said in Chinese, Wang told us about some of the extraordinary talents you showed when she encountered you before. And, of course, we had heard rumors of the ageless Chinese woman who worked for the Pope. But seeing the results of your abilities in person, I must say I'm quite impressed. Grace ignored the flattery. The Engstroms have no interest in partnership with you, she said. They want only to enrich themselves and will sacrifice anyone and anything to do so. That, the man said, is why we are having this discussion. There are two roads before you. If you choose the first, you will be charged with the crimes enumerated by Wang and imprisoned. Although I doubt that our prisons would effectively hold you. And the second? Grace asked. Come home, Chen Zhuan. Grace felt her heart speed up at the sound of her name, long disused but never forgotten. 
The man leaned forward, eyes alight with his fervor. Use your unique talents for the nation of your birth, not a superstitious foreign prince. With an agent of your knowledge and experience at its head and the full support of the party, the Arcane Security Bureau would easily be the match of our enemies, both magical and mundane. Grace's eyes cut to Wong. She didn't look surprised. She also didn't look happy. What about Wong? Grace asked. Agent Wong has graciously agreed to be your assistant and liaison, an interface to execute your vision for the Bureau. Naturally, we would provide accommodation and an appropriate placement for Miss Brooks as well, although her access to sensitive areas would be limited for reasons of state security. Grace wished that she could believe that it was all a lie. The bit about Wong's gracious agreement certainly was, but for the rest... There was no reason for this man to dangle an offer he had no intention of fulfilling. He had all but acknowledged that he knew he could not hold Grace by force. She had something that he wanted, and he offered, a chance to do the work that had first drawn her into the world of magic. A position where she might be able to effectively counter the Angstrom's plans. But he wasn't lying about Sal, either. No matter what appropriate placement they found, Sal would be a hostage to ensure Grace's good behavior. He might not be able to hold her by force, but oh yes, he would find a way to hold her. For the first time since they had been taken, Grace permitted herself to turn and look at Sal. She met her eyes and knew what she had to do. She had not left her masters at the Vatican to replace them with this stranger from a foreign China. This country was not her home, Sal was. Grace had never tried to put another in her boat when she rode hard with the current. She had no idea if Sal would survive the burn. She had no choices left. I'm sorry, she told the man, but I reject your options. She took Sal's hand and burned. For Sal, everything happened in an instant. Grace took her hand, and suddenly the world vanished in a blur so dazzling it was blinding even through her closed eyelids. The air rasped her skin, stabbed at her lungs when she tried to take a breath. And then it stopped. The cold wind and salt tears stung her cheeks, exposed skin raw and tender. The sky above was clear and blue. And Grace was looking down at her, face lined in concern. Where are we? Sal asked. Safe said Grace for a little while. Sal pulled herself to her feet. Everything seemed to be working, although sore. She flexed her hand where Grace had gripped it, rolled her shoulder. I didn't know you could do that. Neither did I. Are you okay? Sal nodded. Is that what it's like for you, every time? I have no idea. I doubt it. Sal smiled, just so Grace would smile back. It worked. Come on, Sal said. Let's go home. Father Manchu looked across the aisle to where Sal and Grace slept against each other in their cramped airline seats, reassuring himself that they were really there. It had only been 36 hours since the Angstroms had obtained the Lotus, and Grace and Sal had barely escaped the Chinese, but Manchu's life revolved around God and magic, two forces so great that to even think of controlling them was laughable. And yet, he could not remember ever feeling more helpless than he had as he listened to Liam's phone ring, waiting for Sal to answer. He got up to stretch his legs and exercise his thoughts. Heading forward, a young flight attendant stopped him at the front galley. 
I'm sorry, Father, this cabin is reserved for our first-class passengers. In that instant, Manchu's carefully contained frustration and rage threatened to bubble over. He wanted to push past the flight attendant, shout at the first-class travelers with their sleeping pods and their complimentary drinks and gourmet food, insulated from the other passengers, from the freezing atmosphere outside, from each other. He wanted to scream, we're on the same plane. You're still going to crash with the rest of us. But it would accomplish nothing. Well, nothing except get him arrested and perhaps a starring role on an internet viral video, which was less than nothing. Manchu nodded to the flight attendant, turned around, and walked back to his seat, to his place. But his anger, banked and hot, remained. Back in London, Grace let Sal tell the story to Asante, Francis, and Perry. Sal had not asked Grace about her conversation in Chinese with the man in the suit and did not drop the slightest hint to the others that it had taken place. She kept her account simple. The Engstroms had the lotus of time and an alliance with the Chinese government. They had failed, but thanks to Grace, they had survived. No one offered a hint of blame. Only Grace felt the weight of the unspoken in the air. As they lay in bed that night, the room lit only by Grace's candle and the spill of streetlights through the gaps in the blinds. Grace told Sal what the man had said. They had agreed from the beginning that they didn't have time to lie to each other, and Grace found she could not bear to tell Sal anything less than the truth. Was it tempting? Sal asked. Tonight, Grace was the small spoon. Maybe not the offer, but going home? Grace turned over and pushed back so she could look into Sal's eyes. China isn't my home anymore. I outlived my China, just like everything else. Sal's smile couldn't hide her sadness. At least when I'm gone, I know someone will remember me. No. No? Grace shook her head. I lived the way I did at the Vatican for years and didn't mind not having a normal life because I didn't have anyone I needed to be normal for. The last few weeks when we were traveling, even when we were trapped in that mountain, it reminded me of what I've missed. My life is mine now, in a way that it hasn't been, maybe ever. I have less than ten years on my candle, and we don't even know if the world is going to last that long. If we only have a little time left, I want to be in the same current with the rest of the world. And I want to share my boat with you. Grace appreciated that Sal didn't try to talk her out of her decision, something she suspected that Manchu might have. But Sal did have questions. Grace answered them. And then she answered Sal's new questions prompted by her answers. Eventually, they fell asleep. They woke to Grace's candle, still burning in the morning light. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>